Credit scores are important to financial health. Do you know yours and how it's calculated? A poor credit score can make it hard to get a loan, a credit card, or even a job. We can help answer questions and possibly save you money. Hi, I'm Diane Freeby of Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, inviting you to schedule a free financial checkup today at NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame FCU. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Special thanks goes out to our friends over at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union for underwriting the show. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. On a scale of one to 10, how excited are you to record a show today? I would say seven and a half. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, the reason I said that is, you know, I have other things that are on my mind that I got to do today. And I thought, uh, but no, I always enjoy it. I should say a nine and a half. I'm sorry I said that. <laughs> <laughs> you are a busy man. So we appreciate you taking some time to reflect on this. Uh, this is part two or part three, how, depending on how you look at it, because we did an intro. So Eucharist as mystery was kind of the, the intro. And then we did Eucharist as sacrifice as kind of a, a part one. And today we talk about the Eucharist as presence. So. When we talk about presence, I, I immediately think of when we say the, the true presence yeah. of Jesus in the Eucharist, the body, blood, soul, and divinity. Is this what we're talking about? That's correct. The real presence of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. Yeah, I love to talk about this. I would like to start, though, by giving a little shout out, if that's okay. Sure. A week and a half ago, I had the rite of election in Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception in Fort Wayne, and two weeks before that... I celebrated the right of election in South Bend. And for those listeners who aren't familiar with the right of election, it's kind of like the last step before for all the people who are preparing adults who are going to be baptized at the Easter Vigil or if they're going to be received into the Catholic Church, into full communion with the Church. So it's a ceremony where that, you know, has all of those candidates and their sponsors present and they kind of, it's just initiating the last phase. And the catechumens, the unbaptized, they become the elect. Mm -hmm. They are chosen, elected by the church. And, you know, so they're, they're coming into the church. And the others are already baptized, the candidates, but they are being received into the Catholic church because they were baptized in other, other communities. Sure. In any event, after, after the rite of election in Fort Wayne, a woman came up to me who listens often to, to this show, Truth and Charity. And she said, you know, how this has been part of her journey to the Catholic faith. Okay. And that made me feel so good. And I, so her name was Deb. I, I can't remember. I'm trying to remember where she's from. I want to say maybe Rome City, but I don't want to say that for sure. But anyhow, I want to do a shout out to Deb yeah. because she's probably listening. And, and Deb and, and anyone else who's preparing for the sacraments at Easter, of course, th these episodes on the Holy Eucharist are especially important for you for sure. because you're preparing to receive our Lord for the first time in the Holy Eucharist. And what a great day that's going to be for you at the Easter Vigil. Yeah. yeah. So the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, the, as you mentioned, Kyle, last talk, I, or the last show, I talked about how the Holy Eucharist is a mystery of sacrifice. And I was using it under the whole idea of the sacrament of love. So if you remember, I spoke about how the Eucharist is the sacrament of Jesus, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride. 
So Christ is the bridegroom, the lover, who gave himself in sacrifice for the church, for his bride, for us, and we're his beloved. So we can think of that, but now when we talk about presence, love is not involves that sacrifice for, but also when you love someone, you want to be with them, to be present with your the one that you love. So this mystery of the real presence, the mystery of Christ in the Eucharist, his presence, it's because Christ the bridegroom wants to dwell with us, to be with us, to be present with us, his bride, with his beloved church. So I think this is a beautiful way to look at the mystery of the Holy Eucharist. So, of course, why did Jesus institute the Eucharist? One of the reasons is to be with us in this sacrament, to be able to to continue to dwell with us, his beloved, his bride on earth. And he dwells with us in his sacred humanity. His body, of course, ascended into heaven. So he's not present with us in the same way that he was during his earthly life. When you think about it, when Jesus was walking this earth, he was subject to the limits of time and space. So he was physically present on earth for only 33 33 years and in a very small area of the globe, that area of Galilee and Judea. Now, in becoming present in the Eucharist, he allows us, his disciples, through the centuries, no limit of time, no limit of space, of geography, and it allows us to have contact with him in his sacred humanity. So he's present not just in one place, he's now present in all the tabernacles of the world. Mm -hmm. And in the Eucharist, he is always present to us as our Redeemer, as our Savior. He continues to dwell with us, his beloved. And he remains with us during our earthly pilgrimage. Of course, his majesty of his presence is veiled. It's hidden under or behind the appearances of bread and wine. Mm -hmm. He's present under these very humble and common species of bread and wine. When we think about that, we can say that the Eucharist teaches us humility. Of course, we see the great humility of God when he became man in the incarnation, but also in the Eucharist. As a matter of fact, St. Francis of Assisi once said to the friars, referring to the Eucharist, behold the humility of God. Hmm. You know, the, the Son of God humbled himself in becoming man at the incarnation. He humbled himself in dying on the cross for us. And he's humble now in this sacramental state in the Eucharist under the appearances of just ordinary food and drink, bread and wine. There's a great hymn you've probably heard, Adoro Te Devote, I Adore You Devoutly, written by St. Thomas Aquinas. And when I gave the talk at the Eucharistic Formation Days, I played the hymn, Adoro Te Devote. I should have brought my a cassette 
tape recorder. I, don't know I thought you were going to say that. you should have brought your guitar or your, or your piano. <laughs> well, that you, you don't want to hear me sing. You didn't play it on an instrument. You played it. You played a recording of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I didn't. Yes. And it was, and we had beautiful sacred art images as it was being played. Mm. But no, I should have, you could sing it for the listeners because you have a good voice. I, well, I, medium, but I know I've heard Eucharistic songs by St. Thomas Aquinas. It, like a faith, what is it? The talks about the deception of our eyes and faith will, there's, there's a line I really like in it. Faith, oh yeah. Faith I'll, I'll will, come to that. Jesus our, talked to us. I only know the Latin. <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea the Latin. Okay. So, you know, I, the listeners help. Okay, when our here, human senses this, fail. The, that's, yes. That's the line. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll talk about that. Adoro te devote latens deitas. That's the first time I've ever sung on the radio. That nice. Was, that was bad, huh? We just, we just set a record. Yeah. <laughs> we did it. But now people will recognize, hopefully, yeah, from yeah, what yeah. I just said. So St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, wrote these beautiful Eucharistic hymns. Really, it was for the divine office for Corpus Christi, the divine office being the liturgy of the hours. But this Adoro Te Devote wasn't part of that. Scholars have tried to study when St. Thomas wrote this, but in historical scholarship shows that it was probably his last prayer. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas, great doctor of the church, great wisdom and insights about the Eucharist, wrote this, you know, at the end of his life. And it was, it's believed that it was on his deathbed. And while he was on his deathbed, he received Holy Communion in tears. Mm. And it's said, that it was then that he spoke the words of this hymn hmm. of Adoro Te Devote. Of course, he didn't write the music for it. He, it's the words that come from St. Thomas. So it's a very poetic text and expresses the Eucharistic spirituality of Thomas Aquinas with the greatest density and the greatest beauty, really. Hmm. And it begins with those words that I just tried to sing. <laughs> Adoro Te Devote, Latens Deitas. Devoutly, I adore you, hidden deity. Mm. Now, some manuscripts say Latin's veritas, hidden truth. So there's, we're not exactly oh, yeah. sure which word St. Thomas wrote, but either way, in the Eucharist, God is hidden, as I mentioned, under the species of bread and wine, so we adore him, adoro te devote. And the church has sung this hymn when you think about it, for the past 800 years, mm. this song of adoration to Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. So, adoro te devote latens deitas, and then he says, writes, que sub his figuris veri latitas, who truly lie hid, hidden under these signs. So, we adore. Now, adoration is an act reserved only to God. We adore no one and nothing else. Mm -hmm. To adore anyone or anything else is the sin of idolatry. Mm. So we adore the Blessed Sacrament because it is Jesus. It's the eternal Son of God. And so in the Eucharist, we adore Jesus, whose presence is hidden under the signs of bread and wine. 
There's a beautiful quote by St. Augustine, who St. Augustine wrote and taught that adoration is due to the Eucharist. This was believed from, you know, the early centuries of the church, that the Eucharist is a sacrament to be adored because it is Jesus himself. And this is what the great St. Augustine said. And because the Lord walked here on earth in his flesh, he gave us this flesh for our salvation. No one, however, eats that flesh if he has not first adored it. And not only do we not sin when we offer adoration to it, but moreover, we sin by not adoring it. And I think that's good to to think about when we're going up to receive Holy Communion. That's why we make a profound bow. That's a sign of adoration. I mean, we don't, we bow to God, you know, or, or we genuflect, for example, when we get in, before we get into our pew and when we leave our pew because of Jesus in the tabernacle, it's a, it's, it's adoration. Now, the part that you were talking about, which is really so beautiful, again, it's much more poetic in Latin, so I'm going to say the Latin, but I'll translate <laughs> it. The next lines of the hymn express the truth of the, of the mystery of the Eucharist, and it's a truth that cannot be reached by the avenues of sight, taste, or touch. Mm. Okay, what we see looks like bread Mm -hmm. and wine. What we taste, it tastes like bread and wine. Mm -hmm. What we touch, it feels like bread and wine. But there's another sense that we can trust here, that we can reach what is the truth, and that's the sense of hearing. Now, I'll uh, explain that now with what St. Thomas writes. Visus tactus gustus in te falitur. Sight, touch, taste, in you are deceived. Then St. Thomas writes, Sed auditu solo tuto creditor. But by hearing alone, this is believed. So our senses of sight, taste, and touch fail us when it comes to recognizing the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. What we see doesn't look like it's Jesus. Mm -hmm. What we taste, what we touch, what we see, taste, and touch is not what is really there. What is really there is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. It's only our sense of hearing that doesn't fail us. Uh, the ear alone most safely is believed. Hmm. And faith comes through hearing. St. Paul says, so what is heard? The words of Jesus. So then St. Thomas continues, Credo quid quid dixit dei filius. I believe all the Son of God has spoken. Nil hoc verbo veritatis verius. And then true some word, there is no truer token. So we believe what was spoken by the one who is the truth, Mm -hmm. the Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life. We believe what he said. There's nothing more true than the word spoken by Jesus, who is the truth. So it's only faith in his words that we hear that can truly immerse us in the understanding of this great sacrament. Only faith 
gives us access to the deepest truths about the Eucharist, faith in what Jesus said at the Last Supper. This is my body. This is my blood. And also faith in the words we read, the words of Jesus in the Bread of Life discourse that he gave in the synagogue at Capernaum. And we read that in John chapter 6, you know, which talks about, you know, Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. So, so that's how we come to believe. It's, it's the words of Jesus. It's by our sense of hearing, hearing his word, what he said. There's another very early great father of the church and doctor of the church in northern Egypt, St. Cyril of Alexandria. And wrote, he wrote the following regarding the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And I quote, Do not doubt whether it is true. Rather, accept the words of the Redeemer in faith, for he is the truth and he does not lie. Getting back to John chapter 6, remember many disciples after Jesus gave that bread of life discourse, you know, affirming very, very strongly in the most realistic language the true reality of the Eucharist. They were so shocked about Jesus saying about his flesh being true food and, and his blood true drink. They were shocked when he said they needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood. They just... Wouldn't, couldn't accept these words mm-hmm. about the reality, the realism of the Eucharist, the radical realism of this mystery. So a lot abandoned him, mm-hmm. a lot left him. And if you remember, the 12 apostles stayed, but Jesus turned to them and he asked them if they wanted to leave also. Right. And Peter answered those, those wonderful words, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. That's so good to think about, you know, like the 12 did not abandon him. Now they didn't, you know, fully understand what Jesus had just taught, but they believed. I mean, Peter was very honest, Lord, to whom shall we go? Mm-hmm. You know, you alone have the words of everlasting life. So there was a faith there, but many did not have faith and they left him. Kind of things makes us think about today, right? That we know that many don't believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And that's one of the reasons why we're having the Eucharistic revival. The Eucharist is the greatest of the seven sacraments. There's something very unique about the Eucharist in comparison to the other six sacraments. And what is unique about it is the only sacrament that contains Christ himself in all his personal reality and that makes his humanity present in the world, in our midst. Because when you think about the other sacraments, yes, Christ is present by conferring his power, his grace, through material elements like like water, like oil. But these elements aren't, substantially changed when they're blessed or consecrated. Like when I bless or a priest blesses holy water, the holy water doesn't become Christ. You know? right. 
it's a material element that's used in baptism. In baptism, we receive Christ's grace. And in all the sacraments, you know, and only the bishop, the bishop blesses the oil of the sick, for example. Mm-hmm. And the bishop cons every Holy Week. And, and I consecrate the Holy Chrism every Holy Week. And, but that oil, that chrism is holy, but it's not Jesus. Mm-hmm. That oil, the chrism, oil is used in the anointing of the sick, the oil of the sick. The chrism is used at baptisms and confirmations and ordinations. But that chrism, as holy as it is, it's not Jesus. But in the Eucharist, the elements of bread and wine are substantially changed. The water, when it's blessed, isn't substantially changed. It's still water. Mm-hmm. It's blessed water. It's holy water. The oil of the sick or the sacred chrism remain oil and chrism. They're not substantially changed. It becomes holy oil. It becomes holy chrism. But the bread and wine are changed. They become Jesus himself. And this happens by the power of Christ's word and the action of the Holy Spirit. You know, at every mass, there's a part where you have the priest extends his hands over the bread and wine. It's called the epiclesis, praying that the Holy Spirit will descend upon the bread and wine and transform them or change them into the body and blood of Christ. So it's by the power of the Holy Spirit this happens when the priest says the words of Christ. Mm-hmm. This is my body. This is my blood. So this word substantial is important. The Eucharist contains Christ himself in his full substantial presence. There's a change in the substance. Now, I'm not talking about a chemical change. Usually when we think today, scientifically, of substance, we think of a chemical substance. Whereas in philosophy, that word substance meant the reality of the thing, you know, the essence of the thing. Hmm. So that's what changes. You know, it's no longer bread and wine. It just appears to be bread and wine. It looks like bread and wine, tastes like bread and wine, but it's not. The reality, the essence, the substance has been transformed into Jesus. So it's the same humanity there that he received from the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's the same body that she carried in her womb. It's the same humanity as when he walked this earth. Same, it's the same body that hung on the cross. It's the same body that rose from the dead. The Eucharist contains Christ's glorious body as he now exists in heaven at the right hand of the Father. The idea of substance, I think, is hard for us. To th- it's hard for me to think of. It's like, what's another example of something that materially stays the same, but the substance is different? Would the human having a soul and another animal not having that same soul is that a kind of a thing? Like very similar material, but different substance? Is this kind of what we're talking about here with the Eucharist? We're really talking about a change in substance, so right. I don't think that. I yeah, mean, the, yeah, animals don't change into humans. Right, right, but. exactly. I mean, God has the power to change 
substance of one thing into another because he is the Lord of being. He is being itself. He is existence itself. So he has the power because he's the creator right. yeah. to change the substance of things, the reality of things. And that's, that's what happens here. I, you're asking if there's another example of this. I mean, we don't have that power right. as humans. We can't do that. But I'm trying to think if there's any other examples and none come to mind. The closest thing is, it really isn't a change, but God creating the universe out of nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, it's a power over being. And it's not, that's not something irrational. Um, you know, can God make a, a circle a square? No. Mm-hmm. That's not possible. Because that's... The self-contradiction. Yeah, it's a yeah. contradiction, right. So, but he can change the substance of things. Right. So when we look, now there wasn't, it's very interesting that there was no, there was very little controversy about this in, in the first millennium. Up until about the ninth century, Christians believed in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. They believed that there was this substantial conversion of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. You read the writings of the church fathers in the first centuries, they strongly affirmed the faith of the church in the conversion of the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood. Now, we don't have time to get into all the patristic teachings because it's beautiful. I love, because I taught a course on this, and uh-huh. you know all the different things that the fathers of the church wrote about the Eucharist, including the real presence. But so there's such an abundance of of, of texts that show that the, yeah, the church always believed this. But around the ninth century, there was a controversy. And then later during the, the Protestant Reformation, there was controversy about the real presence and this substantial conversion. But interestingly, these controversies led to an increase in the understanding of the dogma of the real presence. Mm. And what the church will call transubstantiation. And also we see a beautiful growth in devotion to the Holy Eucharist in the 12th and 13th centuries, especially that really culminated in the Eucharistic teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas and the church instituting the feast of Corpus Christi. I mentioned the word transubstantiation. This doctrine uh, is built on a distinction in philosophy, really a distinction made by Aristotle, distinction between the notions of substance and accidents. And I think this is a beautiful example of the interaction between faith and reason, between Catholic theology and metaphysics, that great scholars like Thomas Aquinas used this Greek philosophy to explain truths of our faith. And that's the neat thing about, one of the neat things about Catholicism, this compatibility between faith and reason. So using reason to try to understand the mystery better. So this whole notion of transubstantiation, which means there's a change in substance, what I've been talking about, was disputed by the Protestant reformers in the 16th century. And the Council of Trent responded and affirmed, and I'm going to quote, Council of Trent said, 
after the consecration of the bread and wine, our Lord Jesus Christ, true God and true man, is truly, really, and substantially contained under the appearances of those perceptible realities. Notice the three adverbs. I mean, this is how phatic the council fathers were. Truly, really, and substantially present. So that notion, again, of substance Uh being changed. So really, Trent gave a summary of the Catholic faith. And I'm going to quote a paragraph from the Council of Trent because this is a dogma of faith. This isn't something that people can, you know, choose to believe or not believe. I mean, this is something required mm-hmm. of our faith. So this is what the, the, the councils of Trent said. Because Christ, our Redeemer, said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the church of God. And this holy council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of the blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church, has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. Hmm. So the, as I said, this, the substantial presence of Christ in the Eucharist is a dogma of faith. The Council of Trent also taught another doctrine called concomitance, which means that the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, exists under the species of both the bread and the wine. Because the parts of Christ risen from the dead, okay, Christ risen from the dead, the parts of Christ are united together. So, therefore, if we receive the Holy Eucharist just under the species of bread, we're still receiving the whole Christ. Mm Mm-hmm body, blood, soul, and divinity. Or if we just receive Holy Communion under the form of wine, we are receiving the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And by the way, this is always a little pet peeve of mine, and I I know people don't intentionally say it, but they'll say, for example, if someone will come up and say, Father or Bishop, are we going to have wine at Mass today? Uh Uh-huh. And you know what I'll say in response? No, we never drink wine at Mass. Uh, yeah. You know, I've never drank wine at Mass. I, owe, I The bo- blood of Christ, yes. Yeah. Because it's, it's not wine anymore. Wait. It's Christ. So do you well, ever notice we might, that? We might start the Mass with some wine. Yeah, <laughs> but I don't drink it at that point. Right. But, uh, I mean, do you ever, are you careful about that? Do, have you ever? Yeah, I think there was that one point where somebody had pointed that out, and I've been, I've tried to be aware of that since then. That yeah. We, yeah. We don't receive the bread and wine. Right. We receive the body and blood or the right. precious. Now blood. you could say, oh, are we going to receive from the chalice today? Right. right. Yeah. Even if you said, are we going to receive the blood of Christ today? You could still say yes. Even if you're only receiving the host because the body, blood, soul, right. and divinity are present under both forms. Yeah. So anyhow, I'm getting off track here. <laughs> But it's good for us to be intentional about what what we say and and how we say it. Exactly, yeah. The Catechism also, by the way, it talks about this. And 
I have a quote here from Catechism number 1377. It says, The Eucharistic presence of Christ begins at the moment of the consecration and endures as long as the Eucharistic species subsists. Christ is present whole and entire in each of the species and whole and entire in each of its parts in such a way that the breaking of the bread does not divide Christ. Right. Notice that the presence remains as long as the species subsist. Let's say you have a situation where a host is dropped or something happens and what you would do if, or somehow has been damaged and we can put it in a glass of water and until it dissolves and then that can be put into the earth. Mm -hmm. But it's no longer Christ because the species no longer subsist. Mm -hmm. That's another thing that, um, just something to know. You know, many Christians don't believe in the fullness of the mystery of the Eucharist. A lot of Protestants I know do believe in the Eucharist, but not the fullness of the truth about the Eucharist. In other words, especially about the Eucharistic presence, and even some Catholics, you know, who think it's just symbolic or, mm -hmm. or they'll think it's like blessed bread or something like that. But it's not faith in the real and substantial presence of Jesus. That's, that's a hallmark of our faith. So in many Protestant churches, if they have, whole, if they have communion, they, they'll just discard the hosts afterwards or the bread afterwards. Right. Because, and of course, it really isn't yeah. the, the true body and blood of Christ because they don't have valid priests mm -hmm. to consecrate. But it is a great concern of the bishops that there are many Catholics who who consider the Eucharist to just be a symbol. And that's one of the reasons why we have the Eucharistic revival. And, you know, it kind of got me thinking of why. And one thing I'd point to as an explanation for a diminished faith in this dogma of the substantial presence of Christ is rationalism. And another word would be scientism. Hmm. And because this rationalism and scientism have had a strong grip on the Western world for a couple of centuries now. Now, what is that? It's the conviction that the only reality, and a lot of people have this, this thought, the only reality in their mind is what reason can grasp on its own, mm -hmm. by its own resources. For example, through the scientific method, that that's the only reality the only true reality. Mm -hmm. When you think about that, it's a very narrow and really suffocating view of the world. It's really a materialistic vision. So, but I think that, you know, a lot of people have that mindset. So unless it can't be empirically proven, it's not true. Right. Or not real. Now there's an opposite extreme, which is dangerous. And that's, what we could call the realm of the irrational. Hmm. And where do we see that? I think we see that today when with people getting fascinated with new age practices, you know, and superstition and all of that. So we have to avoid both of those extremes. 
Now, as I said, we're not rationalists. It doesn't mean we don't accept reason. No, we do accept reason. We recognize that reason has a part to play in growing in our understanding, for example, of the truth about the Eucharist. But we're never, as Catholics, just faith alone. Faith alone was Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. Catholic doctrine rejects that view that it's faith alone. By the way, that's a heresy called fideism. Just like you have rationalism, which is reason alone, the opposite is fideism, faith alone. But we hold with St. John Paul II, by the way, that faith and reason are like two wings on which we can rise to the contemplation of truth. And I love that. That's, yeah, that's good. at the very beginning of his encyclical, Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason. John Paul, and he, this is what he wrote. Even if faith is superior to reason, there can never be a true divergence between faith and reason. Since the same God who reveals the mystery and bestows the gift of faith has also placed in the human spirit the light of reason. This God could not deny himself nor could the truth ever contradict the truth. Mm. So what we know by the light of faith, God has revealed to us, but he has also placed within us the light of reason. You know, So we should use our intelligence and our minds to understand the mysteries of our faith better. I mean, the church did this and still does. Church did this when it developed the, used the notion of transubstantiation. That was always the belief of the church, but they didn't explain it in that language in the first centuries. That only came in the Middle Ages where they started using this philosophical, these uh, words from philosophy to penetrate, to ponder, and to, to explain the mystery. The understanding developed, and we believe, of course, under the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, faith is actually necessary here because without faith we can't rise to the truth about the eucharist you know if god had not revealed this to us if jesus hadn't said what he said and taught about the eucharist we would not we wouldn't know about it and we wouldn't believe but this faith that we have isn't as i mentioned earlier it's not irrational it doesn't reject reason but it transcends reason it's greater than reason it was through reason, illumined by faith, through philosophy, for example, that the church and great doctors of the church like Thomas Aquinas came to explain the real presence with the term transubstantiation. Is transubstantiation against reason? No. Is it above reason? Yes. Mm. The Eucharist is something entirely supernatural. It's a miracle but it's not contradictory and it's not impossible. It's interesting how the Council of Trent addressed this question when it gave a definition of the real presence. And I quote, Council of Trent, there is no contradiction in the fact that our Savior always sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven according to his natural way of existing. And that nevertheless, in his substance, he is sacramentally present to us in many other places. We can hardly find words to express this way of existing 
But our reason, enlightened through faith, can nevertheless recognize it is it as possible for God, and we must always believe it unhesitatingly. Mm. The doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist rests on the omnipotence of God. He is all-powerful and the divinity of Jesus Christ. Just as God can create the world out of nothing, so he can change one thing into another by his word. So there's nothing contradictory to reason about the substantial conversion of one substance into another substance by God. Because as I said earlier, God has dominion over being. He can take any being and make it into any other being right. of any kind. I think somebody explained that as if God can create everything out of nothing, certainly he can make something out of something. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah, he's the Lord of being. Yeah. And that's what happens in transubstantiation. It's a unique conversion, this transformation of bread and wine into Jesus Christ. But it's not impossible for the Lord of being to do this. He can operate outside the natural order that he created. Mm -hmm. Like you said before, God can't make a square or circle because that would be a contradiction. Mm -hmm. But he can disjoin what he put together, the substance and, and accidents, the substance and the appearances of things, like he does in the, in the Eucharistic change. Mm -hmm. He changes the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ with the accidents of bread and wine remaining. Now, we're tempted to judge all reality by appearances, but there's more to reality than appearances. Hmm. With faith, we believe that beyond the appearances of bread and wine, there is Christ. And we believe because of Christ's word. As St. Thomas basically wrote in Adoro Te Devote. It's by hearing, hearing what Christ has said. It's not by vision, by taste, by touch, but by hearing. So I love that hymn, Adoro Te Devote, Latens Deitas, God hidden under these humble appearances of bread and wine. We can maybe in the next episode talk more about the real presence. I mean, I think we could talk some more about some of the challenges to this, especially there was a wonderful encyclical by Pope St. Paul VI on the real presence. It's called Mysterium Fidei, Mystery of Faith. And maybe we can talk about that in, in the next show if that's because I think I've gone pretty long. Sure, sure. So this will be part to a and then we'll do it <laughs> with, with with an introduction and then part one then this is part two a and then we'll do it at uh, part two b. b talking about more about the presence i think so all right if that's okay with you sounds good yeah because i feel like you've talked about the proofs of presence or like a justification for it but not really what that means for us yeah and that's going to be also when i get to the part on holy communion okay so what's the effect mm, okay, okay so what does this mean for us it's an interesting thing. One of the, we'll talk about in the next episode, but some theologians weren't keen on using that word transubstantiation. This is in the 1960s. And they started using the word transsignification. 
which means there's a change in meaning. In other words, what has changed is the meaning. And therefore, you know, when we go to Holy Communion, it's different because it means something different than ordinary bread and wine. But that's not enough. It's more than a change in meaning. Mm -hmm. It's a change in substance. But we can talk about what it means for our lives. I yeah. think that's what you, you're getting into. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Bishop. Before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. It's engineered by Josh Skipper at the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, produced by Miriam Schmitz, and edited by Tony Marks for Spoke Street Media. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.